and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. I'm Sebastian. And I'm Michael. And in this week's episode, it's a bonus episode, so we have a guest ho- co-host, um, and we are reading an uh, academic paper from the journal Sexualities. It was published in 2006 by Elizabeth Sheff, um, who is actually not monogamous, uh, but writes on non-monogamy and alternate relation relational choices um and we are reading her article polyhegemonic masculinities before we start that where are you michael and welcome hi i am in brooklyn in my apartment on my bed chilling awesome thank you so much for joining us where are you sebastian i'm home with my family in connecticut this week to celebrate labor day and where are you claire I'm in Cambridge in England, uh, not celebrating Labor Day. I totally forgot that it was Labor Day. Also, it won't be Labor Day when we release this, but I hope everyone did enjoy the Labor Day. Oh, I've given this a timestamp now. It's also not Labor Day for you, I don't think, because that's an America thing. So, Michael, did you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, my name is Michael Greer, and I'm a PhD student at the Graduate Center at CUNY in Manhattan. My pronouns are she, her. I received my undergraduate degree in English and philosophy from Cardiff University in 2015, and I received my MA in philosophy in 2017 from the University of Sheffield. I'm entering the second year of my PhD program in philosophy at CUNY, and I am interested in moral philosophy, social philosophy, philosophy of sex, philosophy of language, uh, bioethics, and continental philosophy, so pretty much everything. (laughs) <laughs> and I am generally interested in applying moral philosophy to everyday concerns and contexts. Including relationships, I guess. Yes. I, I totally wrote that down. Was it obvious? <laughs> it was perfect. And wait, one thing, though. You are identifying as non-monogamous or polyamorous? Or what? <clears throat> I don't know. I'm still kind of confused about whether I think polyamory is an identity or if it's a practice. So... Oh my god that is such such a good discussion for another time but oh my god that's yeah. a really good point yeah. but um, i have been in i have dabbled in open relationships um and i'm very open to it awesome well thank you so much for joining us um before we dive into a deep read of this um of this paper what did everyone kind of think about it did we like the paper did we not like the paper sebastian uh i thought the paper was interesting um it's interesting uh, i mean we're talking about masculinity so it's, it's very interesting to read it from my perspective and i could identify with some of it um, it's also very different than papers that i'm used to reading so that was a cool change of pace i'm used to reading a lot of like biochemical like biotech papers which are written very differently kind of similarly but so it was a really interesting thing and it led me down a lot of other to do some other background reading mm. but I agree with some of it. I don't agree with all of it. And I think some of it is a bit dated now. Mm. But I think that overall, it was a really interesting examination of something that I hadn't really thought about this much before. And Michael, what did you think? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think I like sociology papers because I like when theory and data mix um, to produce knowledge. I do think that she made a few claims that were kind of big and unfounded based on the data that she had. Um, I think that she also kind of like slipped a few 
oppositions in, or like a, a few ideas in there without explaining them fully. So yeah, for, the, for those reasons, I, I wasn't like the biggest fan of the paper, but the data collection was super interesting. But also, as Sebastian said, it is a little bit dated, even though it was like 10 years ago. When was it? 2006, 13 years ago. So you'd expect it. The, the study itself that it's based on worked from 97 until 2002 or 2004. I have to find the date. But the, 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 the actual study took place in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which I think, as I read it, sort of made sense with some of the things, some of the points that she made. So I guess for the listeners um, who might not have sat down and closely read an academic article from 2006, I'll just give a quick overview as to what Chef is doing in this, and then we can dive into maybe bringing it a little bit up to date with what we think um, about the claims that she's making. Uh, so Chef in this article, she is expanding the, the view of hegemonic masculinities into a polyamorous space. So she's basing that on, as far as I can tell, Cornell's um, 2005 framework for hegemonic masculinity, which is uh, the ways in which masculinity is expressed uh, through a number of actions and habits that are formed. Um, the way that those can be undercut or subverted, I can't remember the term exactly he uses, uh, subordinated is the term she uses, uh, and also the, the ways in which people can be complicit within that and the damage that that can do or the maybe damage is too strong a word, but the, the implications that can have on a wider patriarchal power structure. And to do that, Chef begins with a literature review, moves on to describe her methodology, which is basically 40 in-depth semi-structured interviews conducted with a 50-50 gender split of what I assume is, she doesn't say this explicitly, but I assume is a cis self-identifying, cis slash self-identifying, Oh my god, this slash self-identifying men and the same for women. Um, she then uh, kind of digs into what what she sees as the sort of key themes from those interviews, uh, which we're going to go through, I guess, bit by bit, um, and then tries to apply this hegemonic way of looking at these masculinities to categorize them into those that are... Um, guess the words that she uses are complicit, which I think is the, the more interesting of the categories, but also subordinate hegemonic masculinities. Yeah, I felt like even this like project of dividing masculinities into like complicit and not complicit, or what she says in the beginning, um, that she's concludes that the majority of her male respondents ultimately resisted hegemonic structures to a greater degree than they compli uh, complied with them. That's such a binary way of looking at um, privilege and being in the world. I felt like, I don't know, like I don't really care about like judging individual masculine men and seeing whether or not they are complicit in like power structures. I care about like changing the power structures and seeing how it's affecting women. And maybe that was part of my problem with the paper is that she didn't it was kind of just more about like yeah judging these men in their capacities of as like masculine in their masculinities rather than I don't know doing something more yeah I agree with you and I think that when I was doing the background research on sort of the I don't want to say approach but like the 
the sort of body of literature which was on using hegemony as a way of explaining power it mm. seems to be a little bit more like active orientated like it seems like a lot of people have used it in criminology and education mm. studies and media representational studies to talk about change as opposed to just categorization and this mm. paper doesn't I agree with you like kind of take it in that direction or all the way in that direction yeah can I can I draw you to a page um page 630 where she says <clears throat> kind of halfway through Although many men in my study devoted themselves to challenging gender inequality and sacrificing some hegemonic advantage, they consistently struggled with relinqu relinquishing power disparities and managing emotional difficulties. As a result, they were occasionally unsuccessful with the rigorous poly ideals to which they aspired, even while diminishing their traditional hegemonic power. I felt like that was so obvious. I was like, is that surprising? We're raised in like a fucked up world. Of course, people are going to find it difficult to be better than they've been raised to be. Um, yeah, that, I, know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. As somebody who fits into a lot of the things that they're talking about here, who can sort of, like, was I listening, reading to this and I was like, oh, like this has totally happened to me. Like even that sentence that you just read, Michael. Um, and I, with what you guys were saying before, I mean, I agree, they're not really talking about how to change this or just sort of, describing what it is and some of it is kind of obvious but i also think like some of that is because it is dated and if we look at i mean this is almost 15 years after this was published there have been some changes but i do agree like with that last sentence it's something that i've i don't want to say struggled with but I, i've become more aware of in the last few years of this sort of weird dichotomy of wanting to not conform to the to, to the hegemony and the the benefits that, that society just gives me for being a man basically for, for no other reason than that but at the same time like you sort of get them regardless and it's like obvious but it is i think it's sometimes hard like i kind of get the point that she's trying to make like it's you you may want to challenge it but sometimes it's hard to avoid those things just because of the way everything's already set up yeah i think that yeah thanks for sharing that sebastian i think my problem with it isn't about, like if she said, these men are self-reflective about um, the ways in which their masculinity and their poly ideals are intention, that would be interesting to me. And that's what it seems like you're saying. Like you've come to a realization sometimes that you were like, your masculinity is intention with like poly ideals and like that's something that you're trying to tackle. But she's just saying that they are intention, not that they're like recognizing them necessarily. And that's like the bit that's kind of like, okay so what like yeah you know that's a that's a fair that's a, that's a distinction there is this question of like intention intentionally subverting your hegemonic mm. privilege hegemonic privilege not hegemonic god mm. gonna keep doing that it's like the name dossie easton i find this very difficult <laughs> today um, um so there's a question about whether whether um men who are operating in a poly sphere and by the way every time i'm using the word man here i uh, i'm also i guess there's a whole question about um trans non-binary and intersex folks um which we might be able to get into later but when we're talking about the cis men in the poly group which is who she's interviewed here they do talk about kind of like the acceptance of male bisexuality 
And she speaks about this as, a, as sort of an intentional move by this body of poly men, cis men, to um, subvert their poly hegemony, which is usually very closely linked to their heterosexuality. So most of the models of being like a dude, not like not being kind of like feminine is up there, like not engaging in certain types of work is up there. But another thing that's up there is having sex with women exclusively, cis women exclusively. And in the poly sphere, obviously you have a certain amount of um, intent to change that, like to allow um, allow yourself that the options that come with things like swinging parties and having multiple partners, maybe meeting your wife's other boyfriend. And she does speak in this paper about poly seems to be a more accept more accepting of that male bisexuality. Right? Now obviously this that doesn't mean that everyone that's polyamorous then begins to identify as bisexual or queer. But clearly there is a sort of a widening of what is seen as like acceptable hegemonic hegemonic <laughs> hegemonic masculinity in that space. I think that that is still relevant. I don't think that that has aged as much as other elements of this article. I was wondering what you guys think about that. So you think that um, poly spaces like inherently just allow men to explore their sexuality outside the boundaries of heteronormativity? You think that's true? I think that's that's the claim that she's making, but she seems to be taking a step further and saying that not only is this sort of like inherently part of being in the poly space but it also it's almost like encouraged and men will be more intentional about it now obviously i'm not a cis man so i don't know that's true but i think that she's she's making a, a stronger claim there she's not just saying this is a sort of quote ding ding like safer space for you to explore your sexuality she's also saying like this is this constitutes um an act of trying to redraw the lines of masculinity. Yeah, I I have I think some of that is is a little bit dated. I would disagree with you on on the timing not being relevant. Um, I would say because I can speak to some of this from experience as a as a cis man who is poly and bi that um, I do think I I agree with some of the points how she describes it that. The, the poly space and being more open to different relationships and, and not as concerned and changing that definition of masculinity makes it easier for, for men to challenge those like homophobia, like that's sort of ingrained in masculinity and to be more open to types of contact with men that they maybe wouldn't in hegemonic mono cis male culture. Um, but that's even things that there's another part where she, even broadens it to talk about just like physical contact. There's there's a line that she uses like, you can sit down next to your wife's boyfriend and your knees can touch and you don't have to be worried that like, you know, the way that that can be perceived. Um, and But I think more broadly, if you look at where, like in the last few years, I would say that more broadly, like male contact and male relationships and male emotions have changed um, in how men of any identity even, um, you know, heteronormative mono men, um, I think there is a lot more, at least in my experience, sort of closeness, a little bit more emotional connection and like physical contact 
that I think is contrary to what she's identifying identifying here as part of the hegemony. Um, at least that's been my experience. Um, but I do think the poly space helps to encourage that more because you're you're already building and focusing on those things just generally in your day-to-day -day practices as a poly person. That's, that, those are my, that's my semi-personal take on that. One of the lines that I like, uh, just sort of that speaks to that, I think, is uh, she says, uh, this intimate emotional connection between men is a feature of some alternative masculinities, such as polyamory, queer straight masculinity, and homosexuality, but not of hegemonic masculinity, which generally limits men from emotional and intimate relationships. friendships. Um, so I suppose that's kind of what you're talking about, Sebastian. There's, there's, the hegemony has moved from when she wrote this, and now is a little bit more accepting of intimate con emotional connections between men that are non-sexual and also also sexual. Yeah, I want to like push back a little bit on that because I think like Sebastian, you're you speaking from a standpoint of being bi and of being poly and like just by occupying that positionality in the world, like you no longer, you know, like you are a different person than you were like 10 years ago when this or 13 years ago when this paper was written, but also like you aren't in the you aren't necessarily in the kinds of circles where you would be with like straight cis men who were homophobic and like, yeah, pretending to be like them or whatever. Like, <clears throat> like I, I know a lot of men who are cis and straight who like wouldn't touch knees and would like be embarrassed to touch knees, you know? And I, I think maybe it's a bit overly optimistic to say that the hegemony has changed. I hope it's, I hope it's changing, but even in 10 years, I don't know. My experiences with men have been that, like, a lot of cis straight men are really homophobic and, like, scared to be seen as, like, um, not the alpha male and all these kinds of stereotypes that she appeals to. <clears throat> and it doesn't surprise me that you, Sebastian, would be like, wait, that's not the world I live in, because, of course, you don't live in that world because you're not like that, you know? That's a very good point. Yeah, and a big... <laughs> A big change from like a couple of years ago as well is that now you, now you are living in a poly space, Sebastian. Like there's still, um, like now like maybe the hegemony in poly is just slightly left of the hegemony of of uh, sort of widest because she's talking about this as like a subculture, I guess, almost like a subspace. Um, so may, maybe you're just mistaking, um, sort of your experience when now you're in that culture and then saying well the rest of you know the wider culture is like this um but one of the things that's really clear from the way that people have been talking about hegemony since the 80s is that there is no one uh like you know rule there are multitudes of these things so like there's some studies in south africa where the hegemony looks incredibly different from for example sweden um so i think it's safe to say that the hegemony within the poly space for men is going to look different than the hegemony in like wider um, US society, for example. Basically, men, the men that she's interviewing here are like uh, still a little bit, I guess you touched on it earlier, but like a little bit bad at dealing with emotion management. 
Um, so they either leave, like obviously poly relationships are really complex and they require a lot of effort on everyone's part. And there are so many different sort of, I mean, we touched on this in our, in our sort of weekly podcasts, like there's a lot of skills to learn and things to uh, improve within yourself. It's, it's part of a process of self-improvement and that requires you to be kind of emotionally literate, which is not necessarily a skill that's that you know the hegemonic masculinity complex necessarily gives this hetero man no it does this normative not. man um <laughs> no it does not um i guess but so in this paper for the, for the listeners she is um she is reporting back that this is something that a lot of the men that she's interviewing are either unaware of, so they're just letting other people do the emotional work, including things like scheduling and um, a certain level of therapy, it seems like. Um, they're, they're not really aware that they're not doing it. And others seem to be deliberately seeking out people to take on that work. Like they're aware that they can't do it. They're aware that they're not doing well. So they deliberately seek out multiple partners who are women who seem to then be there, at least in part, to take on the emotional needs of, of the men that she's interviewed. And I had some, like, my, the hair on the back of my neck got a little bit up about that because I was like, no, do not use multiple partners as multiple therapists. I mean, I think it's, like, hard because I, I, I doubt that men are, like, thinking to themselves, I'm going to go out and find myself five therapists. I think like part of like, so I think part of being attracted to women is that women are emotionally literate and like you can be attracted to that because like being emotionally literate is awesome and it's really fun to be around women and you feel like taken care of and you feel listened to and like that's nice. So it doesn't surprise me that like men are like, men men want to be around women because we're wonderful. But then... (laughs) But then at the point, point at which like, that becomes like using women for their own ends that's harmful and can like lead to emotional abuse and like all these kinds of bad things but yeah it gets really complicated and I don't know if there's an easy answer like I think like that's just part of that's part of the dynamic between men and women is that like at the end of the end of the day most of the time women are going to be doing more of the emotional labor than men yeah but that's so much more emotional labor when you're engaging in poly relationships or multiple consensually non-monogamous relationships I should say I think that there's more there's there's an even more um like there's a higher burden for the emotional labor that you would have to do for a a man who or for yourself who is going through forming poly effective like um poly effective or polyamorous relationships because it's harder than mono relationships probably because we just have less support and fewer scripts to follow but um it just i, I yeah sebastian as a man do you have anything to add on this i mean i agree with you and it's certainly no relationship in no relationship should anybody function as somebody else's therapist unless it's your relationship with your actual therapist um that's different <laughs> But I, I think in this case, you're very right. Like you shouldn't be polyamorous so that you can date multiple people to provide that support to you. 
but what I took out of this about this emotional work, like the the what you were saying, Michael, like the emotional work being sort of the purview of women largely and men not so much is part of the overall hegemonic masculinity of at least U.S. culture, um, probably most cultures. And sort of the, I think the point that she's trying to make in here is like that still carries over into polyamory and into polyamorous relationships. Like that's so ingrained that, you know, the men to a certain degree still, even though they're trying to more deeply examine their emotions and be open to this and reevaluate how they like relationship structures, like that's still so ingrained in people, men and women. Um, but also that, um, you know, in some of the examples she talks about, like the, the men that she interviewed, some of the comments are also identifying, like recognizing this about themselves. And I think that's part of the shift of the, you know, the, the poly hegemonic masculinity versus just overarching cultural hege hegemonic masculinity that I mean, it's still a lot of work to do, but there is at least this shift in this subculture of men recognizing that more and trying to address it. And the people involved in, in the polyamorous relationships being conscious of it. Yeah. I wonder what you guys think of this uh, example on page 635 at the bottom where she says she details this person called Thaddeus, a 35-year-old white musician who is a man and says that he's never been satisfied in relationships that were simply sexually based. He details his extensive emotional needs, which propelled him into seeking poly relationships. And then he gives a quote, and I'll just read the end of it. Um, the reason that I'm interested in pursuing that one relationship with multiple individuals is because of my insecurities and the sort of nurturance that I need, which is a lot. What do you guys think of that? Do you think that's like emotionally manipulative or do you think that's emotionally healthy? I think it's like, so what you were just saying, Sebastian, about how at least in this, in this subculture, poly men, poly heteronormative men, let's just say, that's going to be the data that you're working with, at least they are aware of their emotional needs. But then you get a quote like this and I'm like, I don't care if you're aware of your emotional needs. Like you, you still have to do the work. You can't just go out and and seek seek all of your insecurities and your nurturing like from somewhere else i think this is to answer your question crazy michael i think this is like exact exactly my problem with um with with this assumption that the women are going to do the emotional work we obviously that's very ingrained in us but this this is like a red flag for me i would not date thaddeus a 35 year old musician I'd be like, well, why don't you go and like handle your insecurities and like come back with a, a more like what happens if I meet him? It's going well. And then he's like, oh, I need nurturance. And I'm like, well, I'm busy. I've got other people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> maybe I maybe I just have like a ludicrously high standard of people that are like to be able to take care of at least some amount of their own shit. But I'm really like not happy with this quote. Um, I, I want to just say that I like when I was reading it, I put a heart next to it because I have so many insecurities <laughs> and I feel like there's so much. I feel like, I don't know, it's a really human thing to have a lot of insecurities. And then like, I think it is like a responsible thing to not put all your insecurities into like one friendship, like to like, I don't know, to, to like seek. I mean, it's, I think it's okay to ask from your, your people in your life for uh, support. 
and love. And like, if that goes to your insecurities, I think that's okay. But you're right, like there's an imbalance here from from the beginning because of a gender imbalance. And I think like, that's a really astute point, Claire. And maybe it's like fucked up that I thought this was kind of like a, a nice quote. I don't know. I agree with you, Michael. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna disagree with Claire a little bit on this one. And part of that is because I, I think reading this from one side, and if we're only looking at it as like, he's only asking, then that seems very one-sided. But from, from this, I mean, this could also mean like he's building multiple emotional connections and also supporting these other partners. I, and I don't think that that's like, this is not so one-sided if you don't look for it to be like, if looking through what we were talking about before it does, you can read it as, you know, he's trying to get a bunch of people to do his emotional labor. But if you read the, the quote, I think you read it already, Michael, but if, I've never been satisfied with relationships that were simply sexually based. Um, you know, he detailed his extensive emotional needs, which propelled him into seeking poly. And so to me, I read that as like, he he's looking for emotional connections. He knows he has a lot of emotional needs, but he, has, he wants that. And he's not trying to put that on any one person, which might be too much, but instead is saying by being poly and being open about this, you know, I think it's fair to want to rely on the people who are close to you or to want to ask for support from the people who are close to you. And if you, if he feels like he has more needs than any one person should be asked of, um, he now has four partners and when he has some needs, he can do that. And if he can balance that out by supporting those three or four or eight or however many partners, then I don't think, I think that's less one-sided. I mean, without knowing all the details, we can't say if that's for sure. But I guess in my mind, when we've, we talked about this a little bit too, Claire, in one of the earlier episodes and, and in other places, but like one of the really cool things about being poly is that you're, you're not ever just relying on one person for everything. You can rely on different people for different things or multiple people for the same thing, or um, it gives you a very different type of support network. So if, if, when I read it that way, I'm like, oh, that's sort of very emotionally aware. You're realizing that you have a lot of emotional needs and you're not dumping them on one person. Maybe I am reading it a little bit jadedly, but I think that's probably informed by my own experience. When you're dating, like if I date women and I date men, the emotional labor I have to do generally, and this is obviously just my experience, but the emotional labor I have to do generally for men, specifically relating to the non-monogamy elements of our relationship, is so high, especially when I put them next to when I'm dating a woman, non-monogamously. I, I maybe just because the women that I'm dating are like, as you, as you said, Michael, we're beautiful creatures <laughs> and they're very emotionally literate because they've had the, the opportunity to develop some of those soft skills almost innately from a very young age because that's the role that you're meant to do in society as women. So I might be coming at this a bit jaded because I'm like, I've got to the point where I'm just kind of exhausted with having to fulfill what I see as a woman as like, basic abilities to function as an adult in a, in a difficult world um but then i i appreciate that that might just be kind of a jaded position to be in um and uh and may, maybe in a way i'm actually reinforcing the hegemonic uh duality of of those skills which is not helpful for anyone including myself they riled me up i gotta tell you it did get under my skin a little bit i was like no thaddeus 
Claire, can I ask you, you said um, specifically, we're talking about your relationships with poly men mm-hmm. at, and um, you're talking about the emotional labor that you do that's specifically to do with like non-monogamy. Do you mean like jealousy? Like, or like, what, like, what are you talking about there? I think it's the whole, um, or like scheduling or whatever. I mean, I, I, first and foremost, I like a sense that they will not engage in the primary role of scheduling my, <laughs> like, a whole body. Like, I don't do scheduling, basically. And I really, I've said this on, on episodes before, and I really hate the idea of having like a Google calendar that I'm for some reason in charge of. So I don't do that. And I know that that is something that chefs do about in this paper. But I guess what I'm talking about from my personal experience is things like identifying your emotions identifying Mm. where those emotions are coming from and then handling that emotion as best you can before coming to me with your needs like I'm perfectly happy for partners to come to me and be like I really need this I've done all the work I can do myself if you say no I have an alternative option like like managing like the first step of that unpacking alone and I have had to teach people this especially when it comes to nominomy because it does inspire these unique emotional profiles including things like jealousy certain have insecurities some people have um issues with like me me being physical with people and other people have issues with me being emotional with other people and maybe i should just stop dating mono guys now i think about it <laughs> maybe it's the pollinator that's been so hard on me i guess that's a question too i mean given that you have dated monogamous men from a polyamorous context and polyamorous men from a polyamorous context, like do you see any differences in this type of emotional ability between those two groups? Maybe. Actually, now I think about it, the people that I date that are male tend to be monogamous and the people that I date that are female tend to be non-monogamous. And the people that I date that are non-binary tend to be monogamous. So maybe this is a pattern that we are just now discovering live on this bonus episode great i mean michael do do you have experience where you felt like you were having to do the emotional labor either with a man who's monogamous or non-monogamous but within a context of a non-monogamous relationship um well yeah i I only have one experience of being in a relationship that was non-monogamous and i did so i did like all the emotional labor it was just me with like everything on my back going up the tail and this guy was like chilling out drinking a cocktail <laughs> at the bottom of this metaphorical hill um, <laughs> um but that was like for reasons that are to do like I don't I mean that okay so with me and this partner we we were theoretically on board with non-monogamy and we like were really happy about it theoretically and in conversation when it came down to actuality and like practicing it a lot of his toxic masculinity came out and that that did uh, exhibit itself in like him not communicating to me when he felt like jealous or when he felt upset yeah I mean it was mostly jealousy but like he wouldn't tell me that he was jealous and would pretend that he wasn't jealous because he like wanted to be on board with the ideals of polyamory but um yeah it it obviously like didn't last long because he wasn't expressing his feelings to me partly because of of his toxic masculinity 
Well, that's my reading of it. I don't know. He hasn't told me that himself. Really <laughs> similar though to what to what Chef's talking about in this, where it's like that men have become aware of there is like a, the space between the the ideals that they want to be. Bastion, you kind of spoken about it earlier, actually. This ideal mm. poly guy um, is almost like so far away from where you start at the bottom of that metaphorical hill that maybe men just sort of look at it and go, I won't, I won't bother. And I already have a Sherpa of a woman with me, so why would I? <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it, but you can't make it to the top of the hill unless, like, you're both doing the work. Like, that's what I found with this partner. Like, yeah. I, like, he wasn't in it with me, really, because, like, he wasn't willing to be vulnerable with me, you know? Mm. Like, that's, that's something that I think is really important in relationships, like, willing to be emotionally vulnerable. Can I just add to our hill metaphor a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I agree with everything. I, I do think one of the challenges, and that might be true in, in your situation, probably more broadly for men, and what you were saying too, Claire, like there's this, there's wanting to live up to the idea, like wanting to shift how you look at things. And so you look at that hill and you're like, I want to climb it, but it can be really hard. And there's all these other cultural things that are like pushing you back and like, insecurities and or jealousy or cultural pressure that says you shouldn't be okay with that um but then there's the added thing like so say you're like re-examining and you're like no i this is what i want like this this makes sense like i i like these ideals of polyamory like i don't want to follow this train of masculinity that doesn't make it easier to deal with some of those insecurities and I can totally understand like being in those situations and really wanting this all to work out and not wanting to share that with a partner because then you feel like you're, that's like another part of the masculinity of, you know, toxic masculinity or hegemonic masculinity of being strong and being able to get through things. And you're like, I don't want to share my failure or my struggles emotionally to deal with this. It's almost like a loop. Like you're trying to overcome these emotions and then, but you also still want to hide them because you're a man instead of figuring out how to talk about them with your partner. Like it's, there's like layers. It's like an onion of emotional layers to overcome. Now we're in our metaphors. There's a hill, there's a train, there's an onion. <laughs> um, can we can we talk a little bit about one of those like barriers that I'd be interested to, uh, to hear from, um, from you, Sebastian, which is she, she talks about it on page 639 and she talks about um, – it being uh, the privilege, according to social positions, specifically having social control over female partners. So her, I think her, her notion here is she's espousing that um, hegemony, like mono-hegemony, is uh, at least partly to do with owning a woman in some way. Obviously mm. not, hopefully, um, literally, but you know, owning a certain level of control of access to her body and emotional labor like her whole sphere of what this woman is to you, whatever that looks like. Um, and being kind of like the alpha male, which she also talks about um, when she talks about the, where is it, page 629, she talks about the hegemonic masculinity, the alpha male. Um, and from what, I'm, from what I'm reading out of this, the men that she spoke to had two ways of approaching this. One was to be like, I'm still the alpha male, but the true alpha male is okay with sharing. And the other one is yeah. to be like, that whole hegemonic alpha male image has no space here. I don't, 
I don't want to be the alpha male. I don't even want that to be on the radar. <laughs> I'm wondering if you guys picked up on that in this article. And Sebastian, you specifically, if you feel like that's something that you come across, like maybe even getting judged for it. Um, we should also maybe say for listeners that Sebastian doesn't look particularly like, um, I don't want to say, you, you look very masculine and cisgendered. So there's also that in there as well. You look like an alpha male. So that might obviously inform your experiences. Yes. I mean, I present very heteronormatively cis masculine I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about those things. I didn't pick up on it quite as much as you did. I, I, I picked up on it. And now that you're pointing it out, like it's making me think about those things more. Um, but I would also say, what is, if, I mean, the alpha male thing is a whole other issue of like dominance and it fits into the masculinity. But on the flip side, from an emotional standpoint, part of me would say that if, if you feel confident enough that you're that you're not concerned with whether you're you're you feel confident enough and therefore you're so alpha you're not worried about losing that like or you're not concerned about it because you don't have anxiety or worry or fear or you're just completely shrugging off the hegemony and and those ideals they they just seem like two ways of saying the same thing wait sebastian yeah um Actually, no, I was going to like jump into your point. Is that okay? Go for it. I feel like I lost my thread, so. I feel like I can pick up your thread again. Um, so I don't, I want to just like, I don't think they're exactly the same thing, although I can see how you might think that. So I think like the first one is, um, it's like, it's an extension of masculinity. Like, whereas the second one is like, is getting rid of toxic masculinity. So the first one where like, you're you're so alpha that you're sharing i think that's an ideology that like i've definitely experienced with that partner i was talking about like when i would have sex with other people like he would like like he really wanted me to like include him in those sexual experiences and like tell him all the details and like tell him and like bring him in and like film things like he re he really wanted to like he couldn't have he couldn't share me with other people without like him also being like getting something from it. You know, he didn't want it just to be me. Like he was still involved in that in your. Yeah. Like he couldn't really share me with other people. Like he, he wanted, he wanted to have ownership of me in that sharing. And he wanted to have like sexual gratification from me being with other people. And that's the kind of, that's the first one in my opinion, like this like alpha generous sharing where like you're really being the good alpha by like, um, sharing like because you're okay with sharing with other people whereas like the second one is like really just being like oh woman can like I love Michael I love Claire like she can go do whatever she wants to with her body and her life and her mind and like I will support her and whatever she's comfortable with doing and like sharing with me and like that's a very different thing than the first thing and yeah I'm not sure if I explained it well <laughs> no, I think you did explain it well if I can just add something on that before you jump into the question is that th I think the key difference that you've isolated there Michael is that it's no longer within the discretion of the alpha male um, right you're moving it out of being like okay well I'm sharing you because I'm allowing this to happen into like you're doing what you want mm. it, you take the alpha male discretion out and you're left with a completely different view of the relationship and also the individuals in it Sebastian um, I have a couple of things. Um, and when I really appreciate your points, I, I think when I thought about it, 
the way that I was framing it from the alpha male perspective, and maybe it's because I, I don't really think about being controlling personally. Um, but as a, from the alpha male thing, I was, the more I was thinking of it as like, you feel very confident in yourself and your relationships. And so you're not concerned about what the other person is doing. Like you feel on top of it and you feel versus the, the other one being a sort of, I don't know, I guess now that's sort of explaining the second one and I was drawing a weird distinction. But the other thing I would, I guess I would say is the, the word you kept using a lot was sharing, um, which goes back to things that we've talked about before about like the commodification of sex and women and women's bodies, um, which I think mostly ties it back to this whole hegemonic idea of ownership and male control of relationships. Um, and I think even that word sharing, and I was just reading an article recently about how sharing is used and having mixed feelings about that because sharing like you still own some part of it. Chef speaks about that language in this in this article and kind of within her data set, both men and women have used this ostensibly possessive language of sharing to, um, but, but I mean, she says they're using it in a way of like being like, it's a, I demonstrate my lack of possessiveness, um, which I thought was an interesting use of language. Cause like whenever I'm, I'm with you, Sebastian, like every time someone talks about sharing me, I'm like, Hmm, am I a meal? And anytime people talk about sharing me, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not yours. Like you don't own me, but it seems that within her data set, I kind of, some of the ways that even we are speaking about this, we're using the word sharing to demonstrate a lack of possessiveness, but in my mind, it's still so closely linked i think i can't find the page but she she says that the women and the men use it differently it's so like the because women are raised where like sharing is like a, a more i don't know we're supposed to be like we're raised to be more, quote unquote communal or whatever oh. that's what she 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 says that somewhere in the piece i can't find it but that that the men and the women in her in her study use the word sharing to mean different things. And I think that maybe we are also doing that now. So I totally agree. Like mm. there is one sense in which you can share someone and that like implies ownership. And I, I don't want to be shared in that way because I own myself. But yeah. I think like you can share, like you can share like time or like sharing is like a beautiful thing. I guess like what, what are you sharing in polyamorous relationships? It's not people, it's something else. But I think sharing is going on. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is no sharing going on. Sharing of time, sharing of like emotional resources. No? No, I agree with you. I'm just trying to think how to use the word sharing in that situation. Okay. I don't know that I would. I don't know. It seems like a very loaded word. Um, even in this article, it seems loaded. Any other discussion? Uh, and I found this line where it says, poly women do, did not see themselves as passive sexual pawns to be bartered and frequently had far more control over sexual interactions than did the men. Like, all the way through this, she talks about in sexual um, interactions that she's talking about, specific group interactions, the men are kind of not getting to call the shots. Um, it's like very much seems to be led by the women that she's, being, that she's interviewing here. Um, Oh my god, the the bit where like she talks about the uh, the African woman. Oh yeah. Do you remember that bit? The quote. Yeah. I thought that was so weird. <laughs> so it's actually even more complicated because it's not even Yansa who is the name of this twenty nine year old African American healthcare provider, right? 
she she's she's not even speaking. He is characterizing her. So she doesn't even have a voice in this, from what I can see. So Alexander's basically the uh, um her husband, I believe, or a partner in some way, and is you know, characterizing her as an Amazon style black woman, which Chef notes reinforces the stereotype of African American women as one dimensional, hypersexual, exotic to others, and and this is an aspect of hegemonic masculinity that consumes women's sexuality as a commodity for male pleasure, or in this case, female as well. Um, and she says that the way that Alexander is speaking about it makes him kind of complicit in the hegemony. But I think what she's trying, what what they're talking about here is the sort of the differences between the overall cultural hegemony and the the poly hegemony, and that he was he felt very uh, subordinated. And this is where they're talking about subordinated, marginalized groups, and how because he's like in a traditional sense a part of the hegemony of masculinity in the poly community, he's actually. Um, like to me, when I read that section, though the thing, the main thing I drew out of it was like, you, you chef, you're really not gonna pull out the race implication here. Like she goes on and discusses Alexander's working class status and how that might have changed his perceived marginalized status versus his partner, who is perceived as I would say fetishized, but they say perceived as being, um, you know, exotic and wanted. And then doesn't mention that this this man is talking about a black woman and she's not speaking. But and he but he talks about he says she's got the novelty thing of usually being the only whatever, and um he's like he's like mad that she's getting so much sex like that's what's happening. Well, I think that's back to the the sharing versus not thinking of it like that because now he's feeling like he's losing something versus the other way of thinking about it is much more egalitarian of everybody should get what they want or what they can. And it's not a comparison. Like he's, he's drawing comparisons about what they're doing. And if you think about it from like, we're sharing this resource or something, then he's feeling let down versus if you find another word than sharing or a different way of defining sharing. That's more non owner, non um, commodifying, then you could look at it differently. I think this this part of the this Alexander man, which she's quoting, um, I don't. I'm not reading this as he is being possessive and feeling like his alpha maleness is being challenged, and that he's having to share something. I think like the whole discussion here is about how like he, you know, the tyranny of hydraulics. <laughs> the tyranny of hydraulics. Are you familiar with this phrase, Michael? We we re- no. What is it? It's referenced by I think it's Dr. Easton. Um, yeah, uh, so we, we cover it in our weekly, one of our weekly episodes. Basically, it's like you are not a sexual superhero that's like permanently wet or permanently hard. So if you're having lots of sex, eventually you're going to like be like, okay, cool, I'm satisfied, like I'm sated. Sexed out. Yeah, so he actually even has a quote here where it's like, come on, honey, I've been hard all night, but she's wiped out and all she wants to do is sleep. So I've written down Tyranny of Hydraulics here. And I've written down race and I've written down class, but I haven't written down alpha male while I was coding this. So just But I saw that as entitled. Like now that now that you see I see like now it's like a, an especially this it's a problem when it comes to polyamory in a way that it's not a problem when it comes to monogamy. 
and so maybe I misread it when I first read it but when I first read it I was like oh that's like so entitled like if you've been hard all night then go masturbate like what's (laughs) you know why are you complaining (laughs) yeah I want you why isn't the compulsion of of your partner outweighing that but I think it is coming from a less entitled place I think it is coming from like a this is a real world limit right like you Mm. you only have so much sex drive and people and I don't I don't think this is something that only happens in poly spaces people who are monogamous also might be um like not super compatible in terms of like libido levels with their current partner Mm. and you have to still like I I every single long-term relationship I've ever been in there's been this moment where one of us has wanted more (laughs) sex than the other one can provide and that's both in a relationship that's monogamous and a relationship that's not monogamous yeah but I can see how it would be like like a a different kind of problem with like if you're going to sex parties right because like it sounds like they're having like lots of or like Yansa was having so like a lot of sex with different people in that night whereas Alexander wasn't having any sex and so there was like a discrepancy in like the amount of sex I know exactly go (laughs) Yansa But I also think that comes, I mean, some of that may come back to other issues about emotional work that men may struggle with. And if you're, if you're going to a play party or a sex party with your partner, I mean, it doesn't sound like they had very good, I mean, maybe they did. There's not a lot of information here, but like the, him feeling this way now, or like he's been either he's struggling to figure out his emotions around it, or they didn't talk about this ahead of time. This is almost to me is highlighting a separate issue that they probably had to deal with, which was what were their expectations going into it? And either he wasn't prepared for those or she did something different. So that, that's a tangent, but I, I think there's a whole separate side and that goes back to like, could go back to like emotional challenges or challenges dealing with emotions or some other things as well. Okay, I want to put us back a little bit more on the on track with hegemonic masculinity because I think that the 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 whole uh, end part of this basically she draws these conclusions, she's made all these observations, and then it's kind of like so what? And she asks, um, do, can can poly hegemony be innovative in a way that I think it's on page uh, six three nine. Um, mm-hmm. The propensity to defy the strictures of hegemonic masculinity, expand the boundaries of heterosexuality, and redistribute gendered social power. These are ways in which the poly relationship has innovative potential. Many of these men's conscious attempts to cultivate emotional and relational characteristics considered transgressive by the US mainstream culture enlarge the confines of the masculinities and heterosexualities. And I guess this is kind of the key thing um, for this paper, but also for wider hegemony um, narratives that I've read is we're, ha- we're having this discussion because we want to move the hetero um, hegemonic masculine man away from from where it is and like allow it the space to evolve right and the only way you do that is by trying to go back to the alpha male uh, conversation is to change what the alpha male looks like like it's almost not particularly helpful to dispense with the alpha male you have to actually engage with it and be like, okay, let's change that. I was wondering if you guys think that that comes across clearly enough or whether you think that's not at the innovative potential of poly hegemony. I think that's one of the reasons. I, I think it does come across. And I think that's one of the reasons why I feel 
even reading through all of it when I said in the beginning that it seems a little bit dated because there has been some shift. And I don't think it's just because of poly hegemonic masculinity, but I also think it's because of probably LGBT or queer or gay masculine hegemony. Um, or maybe more accurately, like the, the cultural shift to accept those things and shifting the the bar. I mean, when, like the to me, the hegemony is like this average of the sort of what is acceptable and it's more things, I don't wanna say acceptable, that's not the wrong word, but it's sort of this, the the average, it's, it's this sort of prototypical person that sits in the middle of what culture is okay with or what culture supports right now. And over from there until now, from then until now rather, that has shifted a, it, to, to a pretty decent degree, I would say from the late nineties to where we are today on, on what is masculine and what is accepted as masculine or what is supported. So I do think that some of this is more broader culturally. It's not isolated to just just because of polyamory, um, but that the these skills and these shifts in masculinity in polyamory also coincide with some other larger cultural shifts um, in the hegemony over time. So Sebastian, were you saying that you that you think poly relationships like uh, like sorry that you think poly masculinities uh, don't inform like the larger culture or that they or that they can and that, that, and that they will i think that they can and will i don't think i don't think that there's enough visibility yet i i think in small ways that they do and and every man who is poly and and is in their own way shifting like every man who challenges any part of the overarching hegemonic masculinity especially the toxic portions of it yeah is contributing to changing it because we're moving the needle yeah um, but I don't think, I, mean, I just don't think that, um, like the poly community on its own is, is enough to swing that needle, but I think it's one part of moving it. Yeah, I think you're right. I, but I'm also cautious of like, quote unquote, woke men who are like, who like pretend to, like, I know many women who have been poly polyamorous with men who have like taken advantage of the polyamory and like use that as an excuse to be shitty to like my friends. Um, and I think that there's always this danger of like wokeness hiding um, like toxicity um, under the surface. And so I think you're right, like, like a perfect form, like a, like a, like a genuine form of, of, trying to be vulnerable and like trying to be poly and trying to overcome toxic masculinity that will have like effects in the in the world but I also I want to be the kind of person that like doesn't just assume because people are poly that they're that they're changing the world or, or something like it matters more like the actual practices that they enact in the world and yeah those meanings rather than the ideologies they pretend to espouse you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I, think uh, I know what you mean in that hegemony is, is not an ethical or moral philosophy. It is a sociological philosophy. It's a way of talking about, I, I, I found it really helpful to think about a cultural figure, right? So like, for example, um, there's been like a long-term study about masculinity in Ireland. It's gone from the celibate priest, hardworking family man, cultural figure to more of a modernized, market-orientated, modern Irishman, right? Like 
the person that you're visualizing almost. Um, it's not saying that this person is better than this person or anything about the morals. I think that's really important to be maintained. This is not a this is not a normative or it doesn't have to be like a normative way of thinking about it. I'm sure you probably could find a body of literature that uses hegemony to make normative statements, but you're not sitting here and nor is chef saying, This is what we should be doing. It's more a way of being like, okay, when we characterize the polyman, does he look different? Does he act differently? Very from cultural figure of the rest of the US. And this is incredibly US centric, by the way, the whole conversation. Right. Um, does he actually look different? And is there maybe a space in the future for the cultural figure of the US man to be um to be vastly different, to look vastly different than what he is now? And I I'm not sure that we have, as you said, Sebastian, we don't necessarily have a lot of visibility even in areas where there are now conventions and podcasts and things like this. But I think it's still nice to imagine what that cultural figure could look like. And I don't think that Chef really comes to a conclusion either. She says that there's potential, but it's like, how much potential? We're not sure. Right. No, thank you so much, Claire, for clarifying that for me. I, I think that imagination is like wonderful. And I think you're right. Like, let's, I want to imagine that that uh like perfect masculinity or that like poly masculinity that's like so um expansive and like changing and like great but uh, yeah i just want to be cautious that that doing we don't do so at the expense of like actually like helping people or yeah i mean i also don't think that we can separate morality from anything so that's my own political <laughs> opinions but um <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I want to imagine. Imagining things is great. Um, and I think that's like, that's one step in like enacting them. Okay. Um, anything left to add, Sebastian? Michael? I don't know. You guys left that on such a nice note of, of imagining, <laughs> imagining this world with a better masculine prototype. Okay, right. I want to thank you very much for joining us, Michael. And thank you for having me, guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and YouTube at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.